You're listening to Evidence-Based IHP, the podcast that draws connections from research to practice. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Amanda. Should we introduce the next episode? Sure. I'm excited to tell our listeners that today's interview features Emma Snyder, a first-year genetic counseling student at MGH IHP. She is here to talk to us about a research project she worked on at Massachusetts General Hospital. Yes, and Rachel couldn't make this interview due to her clinical schedule, so we were lucky enough to have our amazing executive producer, Selena Craig, join in as a guest host. I am certainly looking forward to hearing you both talk with Emma about her research today. But before we begin the interview, we wanted to explain genetic counseling for our listeners who may not be as familiar. Genetic counselors give you information about how genetic conditions might affect you or your family. They use personal and family health history to determine the probability that you or a family member has a genetic condition, and they'll help discuss and decide whether a genetic test might be a good option. Yes, and as Rachel mentioned, this research was completed at MGH, specifically at the MGH Turner Syndrome Clinic, and was recently published in the European Journal of Medical Genetics. We will link to the article in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. Stick around at the end of the episode for a bonus discussion on women in STEM, aka science, technology, engineering, and math. Hi, Emma. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're delighted to have you. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. It's um, really lovely to be here. And just so our listeners know, Rachel uh, could not make it today. So Selena is filling in for her. Hi, everyone. Great to be here with you today. And Emma, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself so they can get to know you? Uh, So my name is Emma Snyder. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am a first year in the genetic counseling program, Master of Science in Genetic Counseling at the IHP. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, so West Coast native, and went to college in Southern California after which I moved to Boston to work at MGH in the Turner Syndrome and Kleinfelter Syndrome Clinics. The Turner Syndrome Clinic is where I conducted the research I'll be talking about today. And then I was accepted into the IHP Genetic Counseling Program. So that's my kind of journey to here in a nutshell. (laughs) I think that not all of our listeners will be familiar with genetic counseling or perhaps like me, it's been a while since they took a genetics course. So I thought we could start off by defining some terms that might come up in our conversation so that everyone is on the same page as us. So the first one is phenotype. Could you tell everyone what a phenotype is? A phenotype is any trait in or outside someone's body. So uh, the color of your hair is a phenotype. The texture of it is a phenotype. You know, whether you have high or low blood pressure is a phenotype. Really anything that's happening with your body that we can see or measure in some way is a phenotype. Um, And typically we talk about it in the context of a genotype. So that is your genetic makeup, which in some cases is correlated with the features that you see in a person. And then there's also what's known as a karyotype. A karyotype is a snapshot of the chromosomes in one of your cells to get a sense of what all of your cells look like. And when we when we do a karyotype, it's usually cells taken from blood and there's a process to organize the chromosomes so that you can look at them and see if they are there in the expected amount, if there's structural rearrangements, if there's one missing, if there's one extra. And that process of looking at the chromosomes ends up with a karyotype, which is that picture of them. 
And so one example would be the 45XX karyotype, which is someone who has two X chromosomes. Or sorry, 46XX. Yes. Because <laughs> we have typically have 46, mm-hmm. um, 23 pairs. Yeah. Uh, and then there are some folks who have 45X, which means yeah. that they're missing an X chromosome. Yes, that's correct. Um, and that is Turner syndrome. Yes. Yes. That is the karyotype nomenclature for Turner syndrome. Although there's actually several different karyotypes that can be associated with Turner syndrome. And we can talk more about that when I talk more about the paper as well. The last one that I wanted to have you define for folks is mosaicism. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, that's perfect. (laughs) So mosaicism is the idea that the genetic makeup in someone's cells may not be identical across all of them. It's likely that at some level, we all have slight mosaicism um, in the sense that it would be pretty unlikely that every single cell in our body had the exact same genetic makeup. If you think about it, things happen over time. Um, The aging process changes our genetic material sometimes, but some people are born with mosaicism that we can detect. And in Turner syndrome, you can have mosaicism where some of your cells are missing an X chromosome and some have the typical two X chromosomes or sometimes we can see other forms of mosaicism as well. Um, but that 45X slash 46XX is what we'll mainly be talking about today. That is the perfect segue to introduce Turner syndrome. Yes. So go ahead and give us a description and what it's like for folks so we can get to know the population. Turner syndrome is a condition that affects multiple parts of the body. But like most syndromes, you know, some folks might have more features than others. I really, you know, want to preface this by saying that this paper is not getting at the quote textbook version of what people might think of when they hear Turner syndrome. And I'll talk more about what I mean by that. Some features that we can see in Turner syndrome are short stature, as well as reduced fertility. Typically, folks with Turner syndrome would be assigned female at birth, but there are cases in which uh, that doesn't happen when maybe they're is mosaicism with an XY cell line, sometimes depending on the level of that. We can see different differences in in genitalia, but typically folks are assigned female at birth. We can also see structural heart defects in Turner syndrome. So these are things that an individual is born with. And one of these is called a bicuspid aortic valve. And this is where there are two leaflets at the opening of the aortic valve instead of three, which is the typical number that we would expect kind of hard to explain without a picture, (laughs) Um, but you can take my word for it that it's a structural heart defect that that is typically, I mean, it's good to know about, but it it doesn't necessarily cause all too many problems. Um, But there are some other heart defects that can be a little bit more of concern. You can have expansion of the aorta that can cause it to tear, and you can also have a narrowing of the aorta. The reason I'm bringing some of these up is because these are some of the phenotypes we looked at in the paper. You know, I could go on and on about various other things we can see, but you can also see some structural kidney problems. Um, So something called a horseshoe kidney, meaning that the two kidneys are fused in the shape of a horseshoe. And the last major phenotype we looked at was um, whether hypothyroidism was present. Um, So that's an example of a biochemical phenotype. That's not something you'd be able to look at someone and say, oh, I can see that you have hypothyroidism, but you'd have to do a blood test to um, assess whether that is present or not. Could you talk a little bit about how 
you would use this to help people learn about whether they have Turner syndrome or could you potentially detect if somebody was going to have heart problems down the line as they get older? It's just something that came to my mind that I thought was really interesting. You know, at its core, that's really what this paper is getting at is can we look at someone's chromosomes and get a better understanding of whether they will develop certain features of Turner syndrome? When this project started, we were particularly interested in lower levels of mosaicism where most cells had two X chromosomes, but just some that we sampled had the missing X chromosome. And there's cutoff values where if you have less than 5% on a karyotype of 45X cells, then you don't have a diagnosis of Turner syndrome. But even above 5%, we can see folks who don't have any features or maybe one feature out of the many you could see. It raises this philosophical question of what constitutes Turner syndrome? Like what percentage of cells do you need to show a phenotype of some kind? And so that's really what the core question of this research was getting at. Yeah, I think you summed up the research study very nicely. It's about having a more accurate picture of how the the genotype or the karyotype is going to affect a person's phenotype either in that moment Mm -hmm. or as they grow older. So with the mosaicism, so someone might be missing the X chromosome in some of their cells, but not others. And then you have folks with Turner syndrome who are mostly missing their X chromosome. So what sort of differences do we see in how that karyotype becomes the phenotype between those two populations? Colloquially, we often say that folks with mosaicism have a more mild phenotype, meaning they may not have as many features or they might be less severe. In practice and in in research up until now, there aren't very good karyotype phenotype correlations in Turner syndrome, meaning when we see the percentage of 45X cells in an individual, that cannot tell us with any certainty what level of involvement they will have, what kinds of features they will have. And that's really what we were trying to get at with our study was better understanding if there are karyotype phenotype correlations. And it's still pretty wishy-washy in that we don't quite know. (laughs) Um, This was a relatively small study, but we had the advantage of having really rich clinical data. Yeah. What were the main findings? And tell us if they were surprising at all, or if they were more along the lines of what your team was expecting to see. We initially had groupings of patients based on, like we placed folks in buckets depending on the percentage of cells that were 45X on a blood karyotype. And when we did our initial analysis, it was clear that the buckets we had used weren't telling us very much. And that if we looked at those who had over 70% 45X on a karyotype versus those who had less than 70%, um, this was a relatively arbitrary number, but it is kind of what the data showed us. We then kind of analyzed with those two groups, which was not our initial intention, actually. It was to hone in on understanding maybe less than 25%, so really much lower levels of 45X. But what we found was that individuals with less than 70% of their cells containing 45 chromosomes, 1X chromosome, they were less likely to have structural heart defects as well as that expanding of the aorta or the susceptibility for it to tear. And they also were slightly less likely to have structural kidney abnormalities as well. 
We didn't find a significant difference between the two groups when it came to thyroid abnormalities. So that hypothyroidism that I was talking about, there's probably several reasons for this. Um, Hypothyroidism is relatively common in the general population. It also comes with age and the mean age of the group with less than 70% 45X cells was higher than that with over 70%, given that folks with non-mosaic Turner syndrome are more likely to be diagnosed earlier in life because those features you know, might be more prevalent and caught than someone who has mosaicism. It might be more subtle. And so main, main take-home points are that heart defects are probably less common in those with less than 70% 45X, as well as those kidney abnormalities. And even though it's a small study, we feel that this study lays the groundwork for getting more information within these groups to see if we can change management guidelines for folks who have mosaicism such that they have less than 70% 45X. Yeah, I just want to bring it back to the title. It's Genetic Counseling for Women with 45X, 46XX Mosaicism Towards More Personalized Management. So that's really the end goal here is to take the data about the genotypes and the phenotypes and transform that into, you know, actual counseling that you can do for a person to help them manage the condition. Does that sound right? Yes, absolutely. So Emma, I would love to hear how this opportunity came about for you. Give us kind of the origin story of your work on this research study. I knew that I wanted to move to Boston after graduating college because this is where genetic counseling programs were and where there were probably more genetic counselors than any city in the U.S., and I knew this is what I wanted to do. So I was really looking to move here, get my foot in the door in that way. And I was applying for you know clinical research jobs, mostly in the Boston area, but really anything I could find um, in the realm of genetics to get more clinical experience and research experience. Uh, my friend's mother is a geneticist up in Seattle, and she introduced me to my now boss. <laughs> and we just hit it off. We we had email conversations and I planned a little post-grad trip for myself to Boston after graduating as a, you did it, you graduated undergrad. <laughs> and when I was there, um, it was the perfect opportunity to meet with them and see if the job would be a good fit. And it was, and I was hired and uh, moved there a couple weeks later. And this is at the MGH Turner and Kleinfelter syndrome clinic, you said. So the the clinics are technically separate. Um, the Turner syndrome clinic is is its own entity, and then the Kleinfelter syndrome clinic is also its own um, clinic. Although there is some overlap in who um, the clinicians are in those two clinics. And so your whole job was working on this study. It wasn't just like a little bit of a bigger job. It was you were the research assistant for the study. Yes, I was the research assistant for these two clinics. Um, The Turner Syndrome Clinic has been around longer than the Kleinfelter Syndrome Clinic. So I had the opportunity to join an existing research study for the Turner Syndrome Clinic. I inherited, you know, a database with, oh gosh, trying to remember what the numbers were when I got there versus how they are now. But I definitely collected data uh, through chart review for at least 100 new patients in my in my time. So, you know, I had some data coming into it and didn't go through the IRB process that was all already in place. Um, whereas for the Kleinfelter syndrome clinic, my date of hire is sort of where we say the clinic 
officially started in the sense that we were um, a coordinated effort to see patients with Kleinfelter syndrome. The geneticist and endocrinologist had been seeing patients before I came on board, but you know, we were able to have a more a more coordinated effort to see patients and to connect them to resources within the hospital and in the community. With with that clinic, I, I won't go too much into it since my main research experience was in the Turner Syndrome Clinic, but we did start, you know, collecting data from from those patients as well and and hope to do some more robust research with that in the near future. And I'm I'm still involved with the clinics, although I'm I've mostly taken a step back to to focus on being a student, um, but I'm still in touch and and helping with some other research projects. Oh, that sounds like we definitely will have to have you back to talk about the Kleinfelter <laughs> syndrome research as well in another in a sequel episode. Emma, I'm I'm so curious. Um, after listening to um, how you get into genetics research, did you have a personal connection? Um, it sounds like this is something that you've really been working on towards having a career. Um, did did something inspire you or spur you to to take this on? I don't have necessarily like a, a lived experience of of living with someone with genetic conditions or you know any extensive experience in that space, but. I learned about genetics and my interest in it relatively young. I am Ashkenazi Jewish, and I feel like in that community, we talk about genetics mostly in the context of carrier screening. I thought it was fascinating. The rest is kind of history. I knew I liked science. It all just kind of fell into place for me. But in undergrad, I actually studied feminist gender and sexuality studies as my major and minored in biology. And so this job to work with conditions that affect the sex chromosomes and you know, understandings of sex and gender and and how this might affect folks, even though that wasn't the point of our research, it was of interest to my supervisors. And it, it just was kind of a natural fit that my skills could could be taken to that setting. And I feel very lucky that I that this opportunity landed for me, Um, I would not be where I am without it. That's awesome. Uh yeah, that's actually super fascinating because yeah. I think there's such a idea. I don't. It's not really a stigma, but like an idea that if you do something other than STEM as an undergrad person, that you can't do anything with that and get a you know can't get a quote unquote real job when you graduate. And yep. clearly, this is a good example of when that actually happens. So you yes. and I, you can't be the only one out there who went from a more humanities, social, sciencey background into the STEM area. Yeah, and I I think it's an asset at the end of the day. You know, as long as you have the background to understand the science and still participate in it, but also understanding the societal context of what you're doing is crucial. I, yeah, I would encourage anyone who is looking to get into this field to expand your horizons and, and move outside of just biology and psychology and really follow other interests of yours because they're all relevant. So Emma, I'm just curious, how much research experience did you have prior to doing this study? So I did not have any traditional science research background before starting this job. I did complete a thesis project as part of my undergraduate work. And like I said, since I majored in gender studies, my thesis was in in that space. So it was much more humanities type research. And I actually did my thesis on genetic counseling from a feminist disability studies lens. So I was very much immersing. Oh my gosh, myself. how badly do I want to read that thesis right now? <laughs> I've learned a lot. I'm so since curious. Then. I know. Not, no. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, great experience, but 
I, I had minimal understanding, I think, of the field. And now that I'm more immersed in it, there's a lot that I would do differently with that project. So I did have that experience coming into this, but I really didn't have clinical research experience or or much in the way of scientific research. But I had the coursework. I had the passion, the drive. I'm a quick learner. So I was able to catch on. And I mean, there are certain specialized research areas where maybe it's good to have a background, but things like skills, like chart review, like that could be taught to anybody. So I think it's really nice that you can have this blend of, you know, the humanities and the STEM happening together because like it brings two perspectives together that maybe don't always get to touch. And it, I can imagine it definitely has an impact on, on the research. And certainly what we're seeing with this paper, with the, the ultimate goal is about the person that's not something you will always get to see um, in genetic research. Often it's about, you know, the the genes themselves and, and not the people. Yeah, we definitely want there to be momentum around this study and for others to do similar work so that we can have larger numbers and say something even more concrete about what management could look like. Because there really aren't recommendations that are differentiated based on karyotype at this time. It's kind of all Turner syndrome, but I didn't even talk about structural rearrangements that can cause forms of Turner syndrome or the different types of mosaicism. There's there's just so many different karyotypes actually associated with a diagnosis of Turner syndrome that you'd think that it would make sense to try to personalize that management a bit more. That is, if there are real you know, correlations between the genetic changes we see and the features that present, but we suspect that at some level, there may be, and there's bits and pieces of understanding of that, but not a real coordinated understanding. So definitely need larger numbers to to speak to that. But I think it would really benefit the community to have more personalized management, like the title says. Emma, I'm listening to you and you're talking about all this incredible research that's just begun in many senses. Could you talk a little bit about what is the importance of having women in science to facilitate these types of study. I'm just I'm just curious if you have a thought on that. Once again, we could spend an entire podcast episode talking about this because I do feel passionate about it. I was very lucky to work with a team entirely comprised of women on this study except for one person who was, you know, very much involved, but this was an effort between MGH, someone at Brigham, someone in a lab setting, so really multi Uh, system in terms of who was involved, but primarily women. And I couldn't have asked for a better team in that sense. I I love working with women. I love seeing these smart, compassionate, driven women in genetics. Genetic counseling is almost entirely comprised of women. Your research is fueled off of a female's perspective about um, health. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think that, you know, while not everyone with Turner syndrome identifies as a woman, there are aspects of this research that it just makes sense for my team to have worked on. And one thing I wanted to bring up is that a lot of the participants in this study were ascertained from infertility uh, evaluations. So they had never had any suspicion of a genetic condition and in some ways, still don't really identify as having Turner syndrome if they had like a low level of 45X. That's a piece we talk about briefly in the paper is, you know, some people claim that identity and it's meaningful to them and others who, depending on how they were uh, diagnosed or ascertained, 
they may not relate to it or feel any sense of community within it. So that's another kind of interesting piece there. But whether it's from infertility evaluations or there's non-invasive prenatal testing that you can do to try to get a sense of the chromosomes of the pregnancy, but sometimes that can tell you something about mom. And we sometimes see folks who have low levels of 45X mosaicism picked up from that testing initially and then confirmed with a karyotype. Really, we're seeing some very different types of or, or pathways to diagnosis for the participants in this study. And I think that's another unique aspect that the counseling considerations really are unique. And I'm glad that my team got to think through these together and be the ones to, to counsel on this. All right. So since we're talking about a little bit about your team anyways, why don't you tell us who they were so we get we can know their names and then um, talk a little bit about the things that you learned from working with them. The primary my core team was Dr. Angela Lin, who is a medical geneticist and the co-director of the Turner Syndrome Clinic at MGH. And then Dr. Francis Hayes, who is a reproductive endocrinologist at MGH also co-director of the Turner Syndrome Clinic. And then Marcy Steves is a genetic counselor who was previously with the Turner Syndrome Clinic and is now actually at the Lab for Molecular Medicine within the MGD system. So she's still nearby and very much involved in the project still. And then Adriana San Roman is a postdoc at the Whitehead Institute um, across the river in Cambridge. Irene Suter is a reproductive endocrinology and infertility doctor at MGH. Dr. Lynn Levitsky is a pediatric endocrinologist at MGH, also part of the Turner Syndrome Clinic. And Raul Pina Aguilar is in the OBGYN department at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So very much um, in various different centers um, within Boston area in terms of who was participating in this project. Oh, and I can't forget my uh, predecessor, Aaron McNamara, who was the research assistant before me and who very much laid the groundwork for this project. And she was involved as well. That was my team. I think in terms of the day-to-day work on the project, I, I worked most closely with Dr. Lynn and Dr. Hayes. And we talked about the way that our data capturing system through REDCap was set up and whether we could optimize questions to better understand certain phenotypes or pieces of information. And when it came time to write the manuscript, I I love writing and I was lucky to be given this task of, of being the first author in the manuscript. I think that is an experience I will never forget. It's been a long process to get to this point of actually publishing, but I love to write. I love to work with others in this process and learn from them. Um, And I just feel really lucky that I was given the responsibility and opportunity to to do that. I thought the writing was great. People who write research papers, I know they're doing their best, but sometimes it is unreadable, right? For someone who's not immersed in the field. And I'm someone, I know a little bit about genetic counseling because, you know, I've worked with the program to do library related things, but I don't know that much. And I felt like I just had to look up a few words and otherwise I was able to understand this paper completely. I felt very much the same. I was able to grasp a lot of the concepts, um, look a little deeper to get more information, but yeah, the writing was terrific. And congratulations on your, on your paper. That's great. Thank you. 
I, that means a lot, honestly, that it was so accessible. You know, as a future genetic counselor, I want to make sure that what I'm saying, what I'm communicating to my patients and to anyone really is something they can understand because it matters that they understand it. So it, it means a lot that the writing was um, accessible for you guys. There we go. That's our, another podcast topic. We can do health communication because <laughs> that's its own thing. So important. Um, yeah, I would say you've got a great handle on that. And I, I know that for some people, like the hardest part of science is the writing. Like it's just, it's two different sides of the brain. So it's, it's great uh, when you have someone who can do both for sure. And I think just in my world too, from working in the communications office, we're always trying to take these hard topics and put them into more digestible format so that anyone can really understand it um, and grasp those concepts. So agreed. So Emma, what would you say is uh, the biggest or some of the biggest challenges that you faced while working on this project and how did you overcome them? That is a very good question. I think that in some ways, being the only research assistant was really special and exciting that I had so much independence um, and flexibility in my job. So I really appreciated that. But it also meant that at times I was flying solo. And as I became more comfortable in my role and imposter syndrome slowly started to go away, although not completely, I, I felt more comfortable asking for help and to lean into the collaborative nature of this process. I think I am someone who likes to work independently and thinks that I should never have to ask for help. And if I do, it's a sign of weakness. But that was obviously shattered <laughs> for, for good uh, as part of this process and, and increased my understanding that to do effective work in this space, you have to ask others for help and lean on them. Not to mention, I... I'm still not an expert in Turner syndrome or clinical research or genetics in general. And so leaning on folks who've been in this field for decades is good and important for my development, important for this project. And I I feel that much more open and comfortable with team-based work and, and the research process in general as a result of working with them. I think it's, it's either kismet or synchronicity. I don't one of those two that you, that you mentioned imposter syndrome because you are not the first student to tell us that in the process of having these interviews, it's real. And <laughs> I, I can understand it affecting some, uh, you know, people who are new to research. I mean, not that it has maybe gone away completely, but do you feel like this working on this project at least contributed to having it subside a little bit? Yeah, I think that I definitely still feel it. <laughs> like I said, it's, it's not gone away completely, but I feel much more empowered to actively participate in other research opportunities that arise throughout my career because of this. There were some ups and downs in terms of trying to get this published too, and and that certainly didn't help in in the sense that I never experienced that process as a first author, or really as any author. I participated in some other research with this team, didn't face the same kinds of, I guess, challenges in in getting it published, Um, not to mention during a pandemic, which slowed things down and made communication even more difficult. I mean, so my understanding, I have worked uh, a couple of times on publishing papers, not as the first author, um, you know, as a librarian who who worked mostly on systematic or scoping reviews. So so it's a little, I'm a, my name's always a little further at the end of the line. 
but my understanding is that it can be brutal. Like it is, it, depending on how it goes, it can absolutely shatter, you know, what little self-esteem we all have. So talk to us about the publication process, you know, from the perspective of a first timer and what that was like. Trying to do this during the pandemic was very challenging. Um, it would have been challenging even if we weren't in a pandemic, but I think not being able to talk to my colleagues in person about how I was feeling when we received a rejection was horrible. I felt very alone. (laughs) But I actually have a good friend who is in a PhD program in California right now, who was also a research assistant before, in, in a very different kind of setting, but before starting her PhD. And she told me how normal it was to receive rejections. And she's been there and had several flat out rejections of her papers that she's participated in. And I hold her in such high regard that for her to tell me that gave me a sense that this just happens. It's it's part of the process. It's extremely rare to just get accepted with no revisions and have it be done. That's not really how it works. And so, you know, after that initial rejection, I kind of got back on the horse, tried to make it better, more clear, focus the paper in different ways and, and try to find a journal that it would fit well with. And when we were able to do that, we found its home and it, it worked out. So I'm definitely someone who does not like rejection or failure. I don't think anyone really does, but I don't think it's one of my strengths to, to deal with. But this process really, really helped me feel more at peace with that process and know that it's not a reflection on my personal worth, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. When you're so um, like just invested in the work, it becomes a part of your, it's not just work, right? It becomes part of your life. And so yes. to have someone judge it and say, mm, not good enough, it hurts. Like it really hurts, yes, but you just have to like get back on the horse and try again. And just so everyone knows this paper is published in not a bad journal. Like it's a good journal. We're, we're happy that it is published now. <laughs> and uh As a a quick aside, I think the date we first submitted was maybe a week before everything started closing. So really, just to give a sense of the timing of this process, it took a long time. Basically a year. Yeah, basically. So that's life. Yeah. There's our next podcast topic, which is how slow (laughs) the research life cycle is and and how long it takes to get research actually published and peer-reviewed and and out into the public domain. You alluded a little bit to this throughout our whole conversation, but I'm wondering if you could just, you know, specifically delineate, how do you feel that this project um, has impacted your first year as a student in the genetic counseling program? And how do you anticipate it might impact your practice in the future? Very good question. I think that having had the opportunity to get to know a genetic condition in very intimate detail was really useful in that, you know, kind of going back to what I said about breaking open that textbook version of Turner syndrome or any other genetic condition. I don't look at my readings about various conditions as if that is it. And that is what the condition is. It allows me to be more open when learning about other conditions and and know that I'm not getting the full story and that I won't until I start seeing more patients with the various conditions and will help me to avoid placing people in boxes and not believing them if they tell me about a symptom that I don't think fits with a particular 
condition or if they insist on something that really just doesn't fit in my eyes, but then I dig a little deeper. So those those kinds of further investigations are what I hope to put into practice as a result of this work. It's, it's one of the three pillars of evidence-based practice, right? Because you have the evidence you have the patient's values and preferences, but then you have that prof- that professional expertise component that, you know, someone fresh out of school doesn't quite have that yet. They have enough to start practicing. But yes, as you, the, the more that you practice, uh, the more exactly that that will happen. So something to look forward to. If our listeners wanted to learn more about Turner syndrome, do you have any specific resources that we could point them to? Yes, I would say that, the Turner Syndrome Society of the United States is kind of the main advocacy organization dedicated to the Turner Syndrome community in the U.S. Uh, they have some great resources. They host um, an annual conference for, for patients and have a lot of really easy to understand and easy to read content about Turner Syndrome. Um, and I think they also do a good job highlighting new research and, you know, those those kinds of things. So it's not just patient perspectives, but really integrating the advances in the field as well. If you wanted to learn more about the MGH Turner Syndrome Clinic, there's also a website for, for us. Yeah, so those are the, the main resources I would suggest. And those should lead to, to others as well. Emma, we are putting together a collaborative playlist of all of our podcast guests. What are two to three songs that you would put on the soundtrack for your research project? I was trying to think about music that got me through the process of working on this project. So one song was Light On by Maggie Rogers. Um, I feel like I listened to her a lot when I was doing (laughs) chart review and, and data entry. She just brought me a lot of joy when I was sitting there doing that. She's awesome. Yes, she's great. I got to see her before all of this that was magical um <laughs> and then oh, remember when we could go to shows and see people we liked remember? in person I know well, someday what a concept um I went up to Maine to go see her with one of my good friends it was awesome and then the other song was kind of cheesy but send me on my way by rusted root because participating in research makes me feel like I'm on my way to the next thing and into learning and growing even more. So cheesy, but it's also a feel-good song. So <laughs> that that riff that like carries that song immediately popped into my head when you said that. And I love it because it is definitely about a journey and just everything that you've described for us so far today, I think like journey is the best word that encapsulates this research project for you. And your whole life leading up to this <laughs> research project pretty much. And and you saying journey, now I'm thinking about like, don't stop believing. I don't know, also yeah. kind of cheesy, but <laughs> kind of fits as well. <laughs> the perseverance. You know what? It's the cheesy songs that keep us going, like, yeah. especially when times get rough and you just need to like stop staring at your computer. Like one of the best things you can do is just put on Don't Stop Believing and rock out for a few minutes before you go back to being productive. Yes. I think I'm going to do that in a couple minutes, actually. <laughs> Sounds like it's party as help. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emma. Learned so much today. And um, it's been great hearing about your journey. Thank you. (laughs) This has been really fun and uh, really informative. So thank you tons. And we will hopefully maybe see you back or hear you back next year after you finish your capstone project for your genetic counseling degree. Sounds great. I'd be happy to, to be a repeat guest. Thanks for having me. 
So Rachel, what did you think of Emma's interview? Wow, that was awesome. So informative and once again highlights why disseminating information and patient-centered research is so critical across healthcare. I loved how you discussed the importance of women in STEM. It's critical to have gender equity within STEM fields so that many different voices and perspectives are considered. Totally. So let's talk data. In 2017, the Pew Research Center surveyed nearly 5,000 adults about their experiences with gender discrimination and sexual harassment in the workplace. We'll link to the full article in the show notes, but I wanted to share some of the findings. For example, 50% of women in STEM jobs reported experiencing discrimination, like earning less than a man for doing the same job or being treated as if they weren't competent because of their gender compared to 41% of women in other fields. So all women are experiencing this, but in some fields, it happens more frequently. That 50% jumps up to 78% of women whose workplaces are majority male. Although more women have entered STEM careers over the past few decades, they aren't always staying. Ultimately, women who leave STEM careers attribute things like gender discrimination and stereotypes, male-dominated cultures, and math anxiety to these departures. Thank you for sharing that, Amanda. The results are so significant, and I think even further highlight why intersectionality is so important. These inequities are vast and diverse, and we have to look further into these issues and how these experiences can differ for different groups and different identities. Additionally, it seems a central theme in research about retaining women in STEM is childcare and support for new mothers. STEM women are 84% more likely to leave the field upon marriage unless their partner is also in STEM, and then this number drastically decreases. Also, new mothers are more likely to leave STEM careers or leave full-time positions than new fathers. I specifically remember studying uh, family trends in undergrad and learning about the complete lack of support for new families and families with the need for leave in general. Out of more than 140 countries in the world, we are one of the few with non-existent paid parental leave. Many countries provide sometimes up to a year of paid leave for families, which could definitely help women stay in these jobs without feeling like they're having to sacrifice time with their family. There is so much more we could be doing to support new families and foster early childhood development. That was one of the conclusions of a recent report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine called The Impact of COVID-19 on the Careers of Women in Academic Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Throughout the pandemic, there have been studies and reports of the impact on women scholars. For example, one study showed a significant decrease in papers published by women authors compared to the previous year. And it's understood that this was because even in the year 2021, women are doing the bulk of the domestic labor, which cut down on the time they had available to work on their research or other professional goals. Now we have this National Academies report that looks at a variety of consequences of the pandemic. In addition to a major drop in publications lead authored or co-authored by women, women lost or had to put on pause collaborations, which can impact one's career because these factors are all considered when applying for tenure or a higher rank. Also, and what will come as a surprise to absolutely no one, the pandemic disproportionately impacted the mental health of women in academic STEM who experienced things like increases in burnout, inability to sleep well, and a drop in motivation. All of the aforementioned experiences, plus many more that our listeners can read about in the full report, impact productivity, recruitment, and retention for women in STEM. That's STEM with two M's, by the way. This report adds an extra M for medicine. 
I would have preferred STEM with an H for health, but you know, nobody asked me. (laughs) Well, there's definitely still time for STEM to catch on, Amanda. The report also identified some positive impacts of the pandemic as well, such as men were taking on more caregiving and childbearing duties, increased understanding and empathy in academic science, and the rise of virtual conferences, which makes attendance and the subsequent networking more accessible, more inclusive, and even further helps overcome the barrier of the research to practice gap by really helping, you know, provide easier access to evidence. Ultimately, the report, which aimed to be intersectional, was concerned with helping academia become more equitable and inclusive, and the authors do provide some suggestions for how this can be achieved. Although, many of these suggestions rely on administrative action. For example, family support interventions that help STEM faculty with caregiving and childcare demands. I also want to mention that the report's chair, Dr. Eve Higginbotham, gave a great interview recently on NPR's shortwave podcast, where she talked about how we need to end academia's hustle culture, that we need to get beyond telling our professors and researchers to just be resilient when things get tough and to figure it out on their own. Instead, we need to build collective support so that when a disaster hits, we don't lose our women scientists to inequitable working conditions. The complete report is a treasure trove of information that will hopefully be used going forward by decision and policymakers, and everyone should read it. On the website, it says it's 250 plus pages, but really there's about 75 pages of references and appendices. So, you know, some late weekend reading. Before we go, though, I wanted to give our listeners a suggestion for something they can do individually to support women in STEM while we encourage our administrators to make changes and plug a great organization at the same time. We know from the National Academies report that women of color in STEM have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and that Black women are extremely underrepresented in STEM. As such, I encourage our listeners to check out Cite Black Women, a terrific organization created by Kristen A. Smith in 2017 to, as they say on their website, motivate everyone, but particularly academics, to critically reflect on their everyday practices of citation and start to consciously question how they can incorporate Black women into the core of their work. We will link to both their website and their critical praxis statement, but I'll quote their five guiding principles so our listeners can get an idea of what we mean when we say cite Black women. First, read Black women's work. Second, integrate Black women into the core of your syllabus in life and in the classroom. Third, acknowledge Black women's intellectual production, which is citing, but also actively seeking out Black women authors to cite. Fourth, make space for Black women to speak. And fifth, give Black women the space and time to breathe. And if our IHP listeners need any suggestions for what works to read by Black women or help finding articles written by Black women for a literature review, the Janice P. Bellick Library can definitely help with that. Not only can we definitely help with that, it would be our pleasure to do so. And listener, if you have thoughts or suggestions on supporting women in STEM, we want to hear them. Send an email or a voice memo to podcast at mghihp.edu. And thank you, listener, for joining us for this episode of Evidence-Based IHP. There are many more episodes to come in season one. Make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any. Ask us your question, send us your feedback, or pitch an episode by emailing us at podcast at mghihp.edu. Evidence-Based IHP is presented by the Janice P. Bellick Library at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. It is hosted by Amanda Tarbett and Rachel Norton. Our incredible executive producer is Selena Craig. 
Our amazing production assistant for this episode is Kimberly Ames. We'd like to say a special thanks to George Sanchez de Lozada and MGH IHP's Office of Information Technology for their technical and financial support of this project. Check the show notes for links to learn more about MGH IHP and follow us on social media.